Upon further review. Upon further review. Welcome to Upon Further Review, your weekly uptake of hot topics across the National Hockey League, powered by your hosts, Angelo Ricci and Stefan Bianchi. Ange. Yes. So if we if we got into a fight and then after the fight got broken up and we were skating away, if I gave you the finger, then got fined for that, and then the fans of my beautiful team started to raise money for that fine to pay it for me, who's the last person that you would want contributing to that pool? Oh, that's a tough one, but I think I know where you're going with this. Is the answer ex-wife? Yeah, I'd have to say that's that's got to be pretty high up there on the list of people who nobody would want to be supporting uh, a cause like that, especially when you're in the middle of some legal disputes. But any any of our listeners likely know where we're heading with this. One of the funniest things that happened this past week in the NHL where Ryan Harmon and Vander Kane got into a fight and Ryan Harmon gave Kane the finger <laughs> uh, as they were skating away from each other. What what were your, your first thoughts when you saw the highlights of this incident? I thought it was hilarious because Ryan Hartman and Evander Kane have had a lot of problems in the past. This isn't their okay. first altercation. I think in 2019, Hartman was given like a major and ejected from the game for a fight with Evander Kane. So there was some stuff oh, brewing here. I know that. Yeah, and I think the way that it started is it's pretty ironic because we talked about this in the last episode. Surprise, surprise. The Wilder up 5-1, crushing Edmonton midway through the second period. And it all starts off with Matt Sucarello taking exception to a hit from Kyler Yamamoto. Kirill Kaprizov comes in, try to protect his man, and then the entire Wild team realizes that Kirill Kaprizov scores all of their goals. Yeah, five <laughs> five people go and attack Evander Kane. Was, the whole line was there. Yeah, and um, it led to a a huge fight. I thought the funniest thing when I was reacting to this is Hartman's comment, and I'm gonna read it verbatim because I okay. thought it was hilarious. He said, "We don't want Kaprizov in there." He, as in Evander Kane gave Kirill a shot from behind in a very vulnerable spot. It goes to show we had five guys in there. They didn't have one guy to help Kane. I don't think any of those guys want to defend him. Wow. Yeah. That, that's a shot. It was a shot. I think he realized he was going to get fined, so he just went all for Might it. Might as well. Yeah. That's that's not even a shot at Kane. That's also a shot at the Oilers. A huge shot. How maybe they're not together through all of this, which is important. Yeah, we, we talked about this when Evander Kane got signed and we asked whether it would affect the locker room and the the culture in there. And we've also talked about McDavid and his ability to cultivate a strong dressing room. These are all things that we've mentioned a bunch. So I don't think it's a surprise that one of the most broken dressing rooms in the league is the Edmonton Oilers because on paper that team is stacked and there's a reason it's not translating. Well, I mean, give give them credit. They're second in the the Pacific and we're not, at least I don't follow them close enough to know if there's a broken dressing room or not. But I think we'll find out after a game like this or after a comment like that, depending on how they bounce back or, for that matter, don't bounce back or show their resolve in the next game, um, will be interesting. That may be something to to keep an eye on moving forward. Yeah, just to kind of hate on the Pacific a little bit, I think like four teams are within two points of second place. So I'm not going to give Edmonton too much credit. But we'll talk about this pretty soon is that since the Woodcroft era began, they they have made some jumps. So we'll give them credit there. Definitely, there's definitely been a lot of a lot of improvement, but we're we're talking about Kane. Why don't we stick on him? And sure, we talked about this funny incident, but I think now's a good, good time to reflect a little bit on how that signing has has worked out for them. So he's played about 35 games. He has 16 goals and 29 points, 
over an 82 game season that's 37 and a half goals which hey I mean, that's you're almost a 40 goal scorer at that pace mm-hmm. um and that that's sort of what they were looking for but how would you summarize or reflect on how Kane has been for the Oilers I think he's been everything that they expected from him when they signed. Yeah. When you signed Evander Kane coming off that really good season he had in San Jose the year before, you knew what you were getting. You were getting a prolific offensive scorer who doesn't play defense very well. Yeah. And when we when we look at it this year, he has a 79 he's in the 79th percentile of expected value of offense and then the 19th percentile of defense. So, like I said, they needed second line scoring depth. They went out and got a guy that they thought would do that, and man, he's given it to them. The only problem that I will say is that because he plays with McDavid, that line is really bad defensively. Defensively, yeah. And they play, what, 25, 27 minutes a night? I mean... Well, it de- de- depends. I'm sure McDavid plays a touch more than all those guys, but they're, they're on the ice a lot. Yeah, yeah. A lot, all these advanced stats show that the McDavid line before Evander Kane with Hyman on that line was, mm. I think, 90th in the league in expected goals per 60 minutes, which is not good as a line. And now when oh, you have okay. had... Add Evander Kane to that oh, line. Ninetieth in the league. Yes. Oh shoot. They okay. are the ninetieth best line in the league. Oh, okay. I thought you, for a second. I thought you said ninetieth percentile. I was like, what the no, heck? No, ninetieth okay. best. And then you add Evander Kane, who's objectively a worse defender than Zach Hyman, and things get a lot worse. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize that 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 was the case. But I think another thing to I I hate using the stats, so I'm kicking myself for even bringing it up. But he has 52 penalty minutes in 35 games. I'm sure a few of those are fights. And again, I'm going to acknowledge this is a useless stat in terms of really what value you bring on the ice. But um, I think a lot of the commentary about the Oilers, but they needed a little bit more bite. They needed some more toughness. They needed a few more guys who were going to be pricks. And that's what that's what Kane is. That's that's why guys like Ryan Hartman hate him because he is a prick. Mm-hmm. So you're getting some scoring. You're getting some of that bite that, that does have value in the playoffs. Let's not kid, uh, kid ourselves. So I think on those two fronts, it's actually been pretty pretty helpful for them. Yeah, it's like we talked about last episode that maybe guys like Landis Cog and Wilson, and we'll add Kane to this list now. He's in that list, Maybe yeah. they get paid because they not only bring that um, that protection or prevention level, they're also able to score you 40 a year. Like I can count on my left hand how many how many forwards are able to be that gritty and also score you 40. Yeah, it's not, it's not many. Right, and when we look at it even more, I think... Evander Kane was a huge add to their power play. It's kind of ironic to think about with Dreitseidel and with McDavid that that power play is not as good as it was supposed to be. And I'll give um, Tippett credit. When the year started off, they started at, what, like 17 and 5? The power play yeah. was very, very good. But when they got into that slide, that power play was then very, very it was bad. bad. It was bad. And now I think they're standing at about... 26%, which is about fourth best in the league behind Toronto, St. Louis, and Colorado, like some pretty offensively good teams. And you got to wonder if a lot of that is because of Andrew Kane is on that first power play now. Possibly, possibly. I mean, even if ha- having one good unit is important, but even if he flip-flops between the first, if he stays on the first and he bumps a guy down to the second, and if he's on the second for whatever reason, that gives them that balance. Um, yeah, he's he's done a lot of good for them special teams is important especially for that team where they're loaded and they're going to draw a lot of penalties mcdavid leads the league in drawing penalties so having a good power play you can lean on is is huge yeah you even talked about this earlier when we talked about teams that we think will be good in the playoffs always the ones are the teams that are good on special teams and he adds he adds a very very important role i think he plays the bumper role on on their first line power play 
and we know that Connor McDavid's the best playmaker in the league. I, I've watched watched a lot of their games after the Leafs play, and it's always that same move. They bring it up to Nurse over to um, McDavid. They slide it across, and Kane just yeah, puts it in. He's gonna he's gonna find you. He knows you're how to on finish. McDavid's line. He's gonna he's gonna find you. And before we get flamed, when I say that special t- like there's a, and this is true, there are, the whistles get put in the pockets a little bit in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. But I think there's stats out there that show that the number of power plays stay the same or go up slightly. It's just there are so many penalty, more penalties that go uncalled in the playoffs. So having a penalty, having a good power play, and for that matter, a good penalty kill, is still vital for any type of success in the playoffs. Very true. So we're we're talking a big game about Evander Kane. My question yeah. to you is that has he earned a big contract in this offseason? I would be hesitant to sign him to a long-term deal just because we've seen that things tend to go sour if he stays at a place for too long. It happened in Winnipeg. It happened in Buffalo. It happened in um, San Jose where he was welcomed with open arms and then guys went to pick him up at the airport. They were so excited to have him. And then fast forward two or three years, they want him out. Mm -hmm. They were begging for him to be kicked out last offseason before this one started and before all the things happened. They were begging for him to be kicked out. And Doug Wilson um, didn't until until he did. so I would be really hesitant to give him that that long term deal, but I he's gonna get he's gonna get signed somewhere, and if he's been a good fit in Edmonton and they like him there, I I would probably try and keep him if I were uh, the GM there. What about you? I think the sweet spot is about four to five um four to five million in AAV, and if you can yeah. get him on a two three year deal, that is perfect. Yeah. We, we talk about this a lot. Just looking at his statistics, he should be signing a nine by eight contract. He is. Huh unbelievable offensively but there is a reason like you said why he cannot last a full tenure with a certain team there's problems in the locker room so like we like we mentioned earlier when we were discussing the Kane signing it was such a good move on on the on the fact of the Oilers GM because you not only got a great score for that second line depth but you do it on a term short enough where these problems don't come to light Right, we always see that Evander Kane. The problems always come to like three or four years into the contract because he gets comfortable. He starts to speak a little bit more freely, right? So if you can sign him on a two-year deal, maybe you're able to get those good yeah. years from him and not have to face the consequences. And, and also, he's he's thirty now. Yeah, he feels like this guy who's always been in his mid twenties for his whole career, but but he is thirty. So if you're signing him to a five-year deal, that's up when he's thirty-five. That's something also to be weighed, but not even not even the fact that he tends to cause problems at some point, or the problems tend to follow him around. But he's also a little bit older than maybe most people would expect. At least older than I thought he was when he signed that contract. So, um, if if I said you can sign him at four years at four years at Zach Hyman money, which is five and a half, would you do that on the Leafs? No, for Edmonton. If you're oh, Edmonton, a hundred percent, they take five and a half. Deal. You would you would do that? Yeah, five and a half for four years. I think. F- I think you want to stay away from a six-plus-year deal with Evander yeah, Kane. And I don't know how much leverage he has either, Evander Kane. He's lucky that they, they took a chance on him. I mean, this is the NHL where people have short memories. If you play good, you're going to get signed. Mm-hmm. Play well, rather. You're going to get signed. Um, so he's going to make his money. I think for Edmonton's sake, they would like to keep him there. But I, I was looking through their, their cap-friendly page. They have three RFAs to sign to. Ryan McLeod, who, okay, plays in their bottom six. But Yamamoto and Pugliarvi are both up this offseason. Who've so been very good this year. They've been very good. I, I don't know where they're going to find all the money to keep them with some pretty big contracts. Maybe they have to package those and give them away. 
But if you were the Oilers, if you're Ken Holland, are you prioritizing keeping these younger players or would you prioritize keeping Kane instead of them? I would say keeping Kane just because he's been so good with McDavid and because we know how that line plays so much for the Oilers. I mean, if you have one good line that plays 25 minutes a night, they can do a lot of damage, especially in the playoffs. But what I will say is I think they can. I think there's an opportunity where they can do both. And I think the answer is um, giving up some draft picks to offload those terrible a lot goalie, goalie contracts. Goal, not even Koskinen, but Cassian makes, I think, three. Keith. They, they can't trade away that contract. They just bought him. They mm-hmm. just got him. Barry makes, I think, four and a half. CC makes three. Cody CC. It's just I, a lot. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a lot of money you don't need to, to be paying these guys. The Zach Cassian signing was terrible the moment he signed it, I thought, because he had a, a great a good year. He scored 20 goals. Okay, great. But he was never going to do that. He was playing with McDavid when it happened. I don't know. I'll give my, my legendary line. I could score 20 goals if I was beside yeah, Connor I mean, McDavid. Honestly, you, you could. You yeah. could because... We've seen it when Cassian got taken off that line. He's been a non-factor for them pretty much. And I know he's good for the locker room. He does those things. But at some point, you need to provide value besides that if you're going to be making three-plus million dollars. I was actually reading an article, and the the whole sort of main point of that article was that if they had to choose between Pugliarvi and Kane, the writer of this article said that they should keep Pugliarvi. Really? Okay, why? And they said that one, because he's an RFA, so you have control, he's younger, all of those sort of demographic variables, let's call them. But when they went, when they dove into the analytics, they said that Pugliarvi has been more effective on McDavid's wing than Kane has, which I, which I found surprising. But according to the numbers, he has a better goal share than Kane on McDavid's wing, and he also has a better expected goal. So he's driving the, seems to be that he's driving the play a little bit better. Granted, Kane's only been there half a year, but I just thought it was interesting that I, and both of us, rightfully so, I guess, thought that Kane, and, and he is doing well, but that he was the best winger that McDavid has. But some of these numbers suggest it might not be the case. So they're going to have a tough decision to make. Yeah, I think when it comes down to the end of the day, you could put a bag of pucks beside Connor McDavid and he'll look good. But yeah. it would help having a 40-goal scorer there. And I think that Ken Holland will overpay for Evander Kane just because the signing is making him look really good right now. It is. It is. Yeah. You know what another signing that is making him look good right now that we can talk about a little bit? Who's that? Jay Woodcroft. Okay. You know, uh, correct me if I'm incorrect, but the Kane and Woodcroft signings happened around the same time, right? They, they were close enough. Yeah. Right? So when we see this resurgence that Edmonton o- that the Edmonton Oilers have had since the, the Tippett era ended mm-hmm. and the Kane era began, I start to wonder whether the team is doing better, the power play is doing better, McDavid is doing better, if that's even possible, because he's insane right now. If that is because of the additions they made on the wing with Kane, or if it was Jay Woodcroft. And I saw this crazy graphic on Twitter that I wanted to talk about by um, Evolving Hockey, and it shows that Mm -hmm. in legitimately every offensive, defensive stat that is being recorded right now, the Edmonton Oilers are leaps and bounds better under Jay Woodcroft. We're looking at things in goals for per 60 minutes, expected goals for per 60 minutes, shooting percentage, goals against per 60 minutes. The, li- the, the list goes on and on and on. Jay Woodcroft has had an Im- like a measurable mm-hmm. effect on this team. And thank God, you know, from an NHL fan perspective at the yeah. perfect time, because this is a historic franchise that was at the bottom of the barrel at that time. They needed to make a turnaround. I'm really happy they did. I really hope we see them in the playoffs because it would be a really cool second-round matchup to see Oilers versus Minnesota after what we saw with Ryan Hartman. Well, 
if it's the if it's Minnesota, that would be amazing. But also, it could be Battle of Alberta in the second round or third round too. Yeah, there's a lot of cool matchups. Would, that would be must see TV. It's it's just crazy how bringing a coach into the room provides a new coach into the room provides so yeah. many different intangibles. Like you'll never know what it is. Maybe the locker room is lighter. Maybe the players are buying into the system. Who knows? Whatever it is, it's working and don't stop. Yeah, absolutely. He's made a huge, a huge difference. Um, I think there are people clamoring for him to be brought in before this because he was with their AHL team and they were having a lot of success. Mm -hmm. So almost like almost similar to I think we talked about this when the signing first happened. It's similar to when Keith came in. He was with the AHL team, was doing well. Bring him up and good things happen. Yeah, um, pretty pretty excited to see what the Edmonton Oilers do. We'll talk about this a little later on in the episode. There might be a team now that is healthy that might come and ruin the party by the name of the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh-oh. But I'm excited to talk about that. But maybe let's move on. Yeah, so we're talking about incidents that happened on the ice. And there was one that happened between Mark Borietsky and Vianney Malkin where I don't even know what happened to, to get Gino this upset, but he has a tendency when he gets upset, he can get very upset and be kind of a dirty player, underrated, dirty player. Um, but long story short, Mark Borietsky and him got tangled up and then he two, Gino two-handed the stick out of Borietsky's hand and then cross-checked him right in the teeth. Now, Mark Borietsky has no teeth. But if he had teeth, he would have lost them so all. Cross-checked him in the gums. Right, right in the gums. He was bleed. He was gushing blood, and then he got suspended, and he got suspended for four games. Now, that is absolutely probably what the suspension should look like. But I was surprised that it was that high, because Matthews did a similar. If and you can argue it was more dangerous because it was to the side of the guy's head when he wasn't really ready for it. Let's say and only got two for that. Um, now if this is a change in sort of the standard that we're setting in the NHL, I'm for it because guys shouldn't be getting cross-checked in the mouth. Um, guys should be getting suspended for that. I was just surprised that it was four games and the department of player safety is always inconsistent, but this time they were inconsistent in a good way because they, they raised the punishment probably to where it should be. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that situation. No, but. I, I largely agree. Seeing the precedent that was sent earlier on in the year with like with with Marshawn and especially with yeah. Matthews, that was the best comparable. The Matthews suspension. I thought it was going to be one or two games. Yeah. Is, is Malkin a, a repeat offender? I don't know if he's been suspended before or not. I'm, I'm not sure. I wonder if the Department of Player Safety has some kind of bias, like how you just mentioned here, where Gino, um, we all know it, is somewhat of a dirty player at certain times. Can be, yeah. And, you know, Austin Matthews is a perennial Selkie candidate at this point. You start to wonder whether guys are given less suspensions just because of the aura that they bring to the game and the way that they play. Yeah, that, that's possible. It could have been that he's done some things that Department of Player Safety thought were borderline and this was a chance to ding him. I, I don't know if that's true, but... Um, it it could easily be that way, but we we talked about Matthews. You just talked about him. Let's talk a little bit about our Leafs because they are beyond confusing sometimes. Yep. Um, there was a graphic that was shown on the um on the broadcast. I can't remember who it was that they played, but it doesn't matter who they played. It was earlier this past week where they showed that in terms of points percentage, in comparison to. Florida, Tampa, and Boston, the Leafs have the highest point percentage against playoff teams, but the lowest against non-playoff teams among these four teams. And that just sums the Leafs up in a way that I probably couldn't. Yeah, I mean, if there was any game to show that graphic, it would have been when they were playing Buffalo and they got demolished in their own building. Yeah. 
right? Just after just after Austin had a chance to score 60, they come out looking unbelievable against Montreal. And yeah. then they get destroyed, destroyed. And you know what? We'll give Buffalo credit. They played well. They dominated Toronto. Um, Owen Power looked pretty good. Yeah. Right? Just, I don't know. You're right. The Leafs are the definition of playing up to their potential and playing down to their potential. And we see this time and time again when the Leafs play Florida, when the Leafs play Tampa, they look really good. But then they get into a first round matchup. They play Montreal or they play Columbus and we look like an AHL team. Yeah. Is there any reason that you see that this that this could happen? Like, is there anything you notice differently about when they play these worst teams? I, I, it just seems it's an effort thing. And, and I talked about this last week. Sometimes the Leafs, they, they need to be woken up. They need something to spark to, to then start trying. And it feels like in these games, mm-hmm. when they're playing against a a Buffalo or a, a bad team, the bad team often goes ahead in the game. And then the Leafs start waking up halfway through the second or into the third. Oh, we got to score some goals. I, I think it it's just an, they don't have to, they don't try until they feel like maybe they have to. And sometimes it's too little too late. And that's reflected in this. And let's not kid ourselves. 71%, 71.8 points percentage is still good, it's but fantastic. it should be way higher considering how good of a team they are and how good they've proven they can be against playoff teams and yeah no you're, you're correct the best teams in the league know how to get it done um during games where they know the two points are not up for grabs like when you play teams yeah. like buffalo and arizona there there should be no way that you don't at least get a point yeah i think they only got one out of four points against arizona and they're one in three against um sorry they're one in three against yeah against buffalo this year which is quite frankly the difference between where they are and first in the division yeah and you know bringing it back to the game last night where we're filming on what day is it today? Friday. Friday. Um, yesterday they played Washington. I had the privilege to be at that game. Um, they looked fantastic against mm-hmm. a French playoff team. And I guess this kind of continues this correlation about playing well against good teams. Last night, the Leafs got incredible scoring depth. If I told you that the Leafs would win 7-3 and Austin and Mitch and Johnny wouldn't score a goal, you That's know, good. would you believe that? I think Bunting, Mikheyev, and Nylander had two. All, all got two, Yeah, right? it's kind of it's kind of sad to say now that Nylander is a source of depth scoring because he plays on that third line. Yeah. He looks great on that third line. I mean, yeah. The Leafs looked so good last night. We hemmed um, Washington in their own zone. Ovechkin looked invisible. Wilson looked yeah. invisible if it wasn't for the fight that he had against Kyle Clifford. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe this isn't a bad sign. Maybe if the Leafs get a good playoff matchup in round one against a, against a very good team, we see yeah. the best out of them. Yeah, I. It's it's weird asking for a good team in the first round, considering we haven't won a first round ever. Well, not ever, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um. But they they do seem to play better against these good teams. I, I don't know if that's a maturity thing, but it's a thing. Um. And and granted, I would rather it be this one than the other way around, but it shouldn't be, right? It shouldn't. But the the Leafs are a a tale of like we said, playing up to their opponent. You know, I thought. That was an immaturity thing because this team was collectively so young during these times. But the team is getting They're older. Not. They're not that right? young this anymore. This is no longer an excuse. And maybe maybe we finally see the curse being broken this year. And in the first round, they beat Boston like 4-1. Kind of scared to go up 3-1 against Boston just because of what happened last year to Montreal. Yeah. But if there's one source of the Leafs starting lineup that is going to be important, it is their defensemen. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to talk to you about this because... You know, this is kind of weird to say, but for the first time in a while, the Leafs have a surplus of quality starting defensemen. I love it. Yeah, they have about eight really valid, valid defensemen. And I'm asking you, if you are Sheldon Keefe, come playoff time, who are the six defensemen you are playing? Or maybe the easier question to answer is like, who are the players that you are are, are scratching up in the press box? Yeah, I, th- I think I'd 
have it the way they had it yesterday, which, if I'm not mistaken, was Riley Lubushkin, Muzzin Brody, mm-hmm. and then Giordano and Lilligren on the last pair. I think that's when they're at their best. And then Sandine and Hall as extras are good depth. Yeah. We haven't had good defensive depth since this course start, sort of came up. It's probably the best they've been on paper defensively. No, I, I agree. Sheldon Keith loves to mix up the lines. He loves he to do it. And, you know, the first time I ever disagreed with Sheldon Keefe was when a couple games ago they scratched Labushkin instead of Hall and then they scratched Lilligren instead of Hall. And I, I completely agree with you. Come playoff times, there is only one starting six that needs to be played every night because I think every single defensive pairing offers a dis- different source of strength for the Leafs. And we'll start off with Riley Labushkin. They went out to get Labushkin mm-hmm. because he does not rush the puck. He will stay home and let whatever defenseman he's playing with take the reins and the perfect player to be with him by his side there is Morgan Riley. Morgan Riley is an offensive defenseman. Defensively, he is average, but because he puts up 65 points, you take that. Labushkin had his first goal of the game last night. Yeah, they were so hyped. Yeah, his first goal. Yeah, So that that pairing is great because now you let Riley push up on playing 25 minutes a night and you know that they're not going to get caught on some crazy like two on O's. Number two, Muzzin Brody, that's the shutdown line. We see Brody playing successfully on the right side, thank God, yeah. because there had, to guide, there had to be a guy to go there. But the Muzzin Brody line, neither of those guys are offensively great anymore. And if you can play that line against, I don't know, the, the other team's best line, you take that, yeah, right? Absolutely. And then lastly, Gio Lilligren. I didn't like Lilligren very much starting off the year, but I will say Giordano has had a huge impact on that kid. Yeah, he's, he's just taking some time. He had a bit of a slow start and... <laughs> He was improving steadily, and once Giordano got here, he took it up another level. He looks great. Yeah, the only place I'll disagree with you is I think come playoff time, I think they'll slot Sandine there instead of Lilligren just because of the notoriety that Sandine brings. Well, he might play that second power honestly, play. I, I don't care. Yeah? If if, if, if Lilligren's better than Sandine right now, you play him. And Sand, I don't know if Sandine can play on the right either. So for consistency's sake, just play the best players. Yeah, Lilligren is less seniority than Sandine and Hall for that matter, but... They need to win. I, I don't care who you offend. So you don't think he's worth playing because he plays that second line power play? Like you think that's Gio's power well, play now? Gio's been doing a pretty decent job there. And we all know it's the first PP that, that really matters because they have basically their fourth line running PP2 anyway. Mm-hmm. They play a, a minute and a half, the first power play of every two-minute power play. So I, I, don't, I, I wouldn't sacrifice the stability of the defense for 30 minutes of power play time. If if that makes sense, yeah, I hope I hope Sheldon Keefe ends up doing this because um, Sheldon Keefe is my new my new favorite person in the world. We're just going to take a brief intermission to shout out the sponsor of today's episode, King of the Journey. Designed and manufactured locally here in Toronto, King of the Journey has a wide variety of high fashion streetwear and loungewear made for dreamers and achievers. To check out their everyday fits and all time apparel, follow them on Instagram at King of the Journey and visit them online at kingofthejourney.com. Do you want to do you want to tell our listeners sort of what happened after the game yesterday? It's quite a story. Yeah, first I'm going to shout out my uncle Joe because he gave me the opportunity to go to that Leafs game last night and we were having dinner after the game and we walk out after the game me my my father and my uncle and we pass by a guy that I see and I go holy moly this guy looks kind of familiar. He's with his wife and his kids, I believe and all of a sudden I realized holy crap that's Sheldon Keith. Yeah, and I was a little bit starstruck, and we were laughing about this after the, uh, af- on on the ride home. Is that my first instinct was to reach out my hand and say, "Hi, my name's Angelo. It's nice to meet you." And he goes, "Hi, I'm Sheldon. He's actually a really nice guy." Um, he took a picture with me, and 
I wish them good luck. And I said, tell Austin to please score 60 for the boys. Tell them, tell them the UFR boys that put a little bit of a, a prop bet on them. No, we're, we're just kidding. But that that's a really cool story. And now all the more reason to, to cheer for him because he was, uh, was a nice guy to you. Love him. Love Sheldon Keefe. So we, we grazed the surface about coaches. We talked about Woodcroft. We just talked about Keefe. And now he's a really nice dude. Another coaching change that we think had a big impact was Don Granado on Jeff Skinner. Because for those unaware, and, and I was unaware, Jeff Skinner has th- got 30 goals this year. Quietly. Quietly. Very, very quietly. We all know that Jeff Skinner um, had that 40-goal season in Buffalo yeah. when that oh. team was really bad. Jack Eichel said, we need to add depth to this team or else I'm leaving. And I mean, fast forward, he left. But yeah. since that 40-goal season, he has followed it with a 14-goal and 7-goal season for a f- total of 21 goals over two years at nine at a $9 million cap hit. That's that is terrible. Right. This but. year, he's got 31 goals, 21 assists on, on 55 points. Um, What do you see from Jeff Skinner? I'm I'm happy for him. Me we too. Both, he's both the guy that we kind of root for. Um, seems like a good dude. Had a lot of injury problems, so it's good to see somebody sort of come back from that. Um, when I was, I was looking at Evolving Hockey's analysis of him, and, and he's exactly sort of what you expect from Jeff Skinner. He, this year, has been top 10% in goals for and Corsi for per 60, but he's been the bottom 5% in expected goals against per 60 and the bottom 15 or so percent in Corsi against per 60. So that's exactly what you expect from a guy like Jeff Skinner who's never been known for his defense, but he is terrible defensively, but he brings value offensively, which, you know, if you're going to suck defensively, you better score goals, and he's been doing that. So good for him. Yeah, I mean... Jeff Skinner has always made a name for himself as being a very high-impact player. A really cool stat is that as a in the NHL, there's a list of expected share of their team's goals 5-on-5, five five, which which means pretty obviously you get X percent of your team's goals 5-on-5. Five five. And yeah. Jeff Skinner ranks third in the league in that category, only wow. in front of guys like Jeff Carter, kind of crazy, and Alex Ovechkin, which means as a, as a share of their team's goals 5-on-5, five five, he is doing a lot for that Buffalo team. And, you know, we talk about what caused this resurgence. The answer, I think, is obviously, like you mentioned, the coaching change. Who was the coach before? Was it Ralph Kruger? Ralph Kruger was it last year, and they brought in Don Granato this year. Yeah, Ra- Ralph Kruger was playing him on, like, the fourth line with absolutely no yeah, talent. And and we don't watch Buffalo closely enough, but maybe he deserved to be there. But I think as a coach, you have to recognize this is a $9 million player. You have to try and figure it out rather than just giving up and throwing him on the fourth line, which just seems like what happened. Yeah, so but funny enough about Jeff Skinner, I was looking at his stats throughout the Ralph Kruger area when he was really struggling, and through all of his trials and tribulations, like his expected goals for rate did not change. The only hmm. thing that fell was his goals for, like that plummeted. goals. Yeah, so yeah. what that means in, in layman's terms is that Jeff Skinner was still producing chances. He just wasn't finishing. Yeah. Like if you look at his numbers this year and last year, he just he just couldn't finish. Um, Patrick Bacon on from Top Down Hockey released a pretty cool statistic that showed again his war percentile rank hasn't changed over the last two years. His offensive and defensive ranks haven't changed throughout the last two years. The only thing that changed was his finishing percentage. The guy just couldn't score. Wow. But you know, looking back on this now, if there is one player statistically that you think would come back for from a slump it would be a player that is still producing chances Absolutely. just having trouble scoring and if somebody is going through a slump you would want that to be the case because you know eventually things are going to turn around and you're not going to shoot four percent forever and he's got a great shot right so, so i wonder if ralph Kruger 
prematurely gave up on him. I mean, I you know, I wonder if these coaches look at these types of stats and go, hey, you know, is this player still producing and he's just in a, in, in a finishing slump? Is he not driving play as well and therefore deserves to be on the fourth line? Because if you're Ralph Kruger looking at these stats, you go, well, Jeff Skinner still has it. He's just in a bit of a scoring slump. And like you said, the answer isn't move him to the fourth line. The answer is let him keep shooting. It will change. Yeah, I I think coaches become a little bit impatient because when a guy like Jeff Skinner is not scoring, we highlighted how bad he is defensively. True. Those become glaringly obvious. And maybe coaches don't have the patience or maybe some of them don't value analytics enough to think, okay, this guy gives us nothing on defense, but he's one of the only guys who can score on this team. Got to try and work with him and how we deploy him to, to put him in position for success. I think maybe coach, coaches understandably so are focused on results so heavily because their jobs can be taken from them with a moment's notice. So maybe he's thinking, I, I'd rather not bank on him eventually scoring and just get him off the first line because we're getting shelled every game. I, I don't know what was going through his head, but it's definitely making him look a little silly now that he's come back and potted 30. Very, very happy for him. Jeff Skinner's such a great duty. He's a very happy dude. I mean, yeah. he looks like a, a locker room. A, 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 like he, he looks like he brings a lot to the locker room. I love yeah. him as a, as a player. Very happy for him. Right. So Jeff Skinner is definitely one of the comeback stories of the year, but we want to each pick our own comeback player of the year let's say um do you want to go first yeah uh, i'll go first when i think of the comeback player of the year the answer is a player drafted first overall i could be wrong but 2014 2015 that was taken to be a rock on the blue line by the florida panthers i think it's pretty obvious now take a guess Aaron Ekblad. yeah Aaron Ekblad okay. for sure last year he was hurt a lot so i'm going to use the stats from the year before in order to um, compare him to this year now. The year before, he'd scored like five goals and 36 assists. He was on pace for about 50 points, which, I mean, isn't bad for a for no. for a defenseman, but for a guy that you took first overall that you thought was going to be like Victor Hedman 2.0, he hasn't been great. And, I mean, this year, when you look at this dude's stats, 15 goals, 42 assists, and only 61 games played because he's hurt. He's now on the long-term injured reserve with a broken leg. He was at a 20-goal pace and 77-point pace. Wow. That would have put him fourth in scoring among current defensemen behind Makar, Yossi, and Hedman. He would have beat guys like Carlson and Fox. Like, it's pretty insane to think about, right? And when yeah. you offensively, he's been amazing. But when you look at him as a defensive pairing as well, sorry, continuing on these offensive statistics, him and Uyghur rank fourth in the league in expected goals for as a defensive pairing. Hmm. That team is driving offense and... Earlier in the year when that power play was among the best in the league, like before Claude Giroux came there, he did a great job anchoring that power play. He logs minutes. He's doing what Florida drafted him to do. I mean, he's my comeback player of the year. Who do you yeah, got? That's that's a really good choice. I, I guess hopefully for him, you can come back by playoff time. For the Leafs, maybe not. Um, <laughs> but I, I like that um, that choice in Aaron Eckblad. Now, my comeback player of the year, I know people may not consider him to be a pure comeback season because he's been sort of steady throughout his whole career, but I'm picking Chris Kreider. Oh, that's a great choice. That's definitely a comeback story. Yeah, and, and dating back to just two years ago, just for some extra context, he was a below-average offensive player, and he was very, very bad defensively. Um, And so... um. Not sure if he's turned that defensive side around because I don't watch um, the Rangers enough and I didn't I couldn't find anything about his defensive play analytically. But I think it's safe to say he turned around offensively from a 
barely above average to an elite goal scorer with 50 goals and 71 points in 75 games this year. 50 goals for Chris Kreider? I don't think I, I, I could have rattled off before the season started 10 to 15, maybe even 30 players that I thought might have scored 50 before I got to Chris Kreider's name. And that's not a slight on Chris Kreider. It's just, I think it just goes to show how good he's been mm-hmm. and how much of a maybe a comeback we can consider this to be. And funnily enough, Matthews just broke a franchise a f- franchise record of 54 goals. Well, the Rangers record is also 54, and he has a chance to break it. Um, so that, that would be kind of cool. Coming back after being an average player, signing that big contract. I think he's a, I think he's a captain as well. No, they currently don't have a don't captain. Have a captain. They're, they're thinking about assistant. giving it to him. Yeah, and yeah. maybe this is a, making a good case for that. Um, that would be kind of cool for him to you know, take that next level and also break the record. Mm-hmm. I think he is, uh, he's my comeback player of the year. I think Rangers fans have been hyping him up. I just searched his name on Twitter yesterday when I was just trying to research a little bit, and there was so much Chris Kreider propaganda, like so much love for him on, on Twitter. I think... Rangers fans are pretty excited to have a guy this electric on their team and, and good for them because the Rangers the, the Rangers need to be relevant. Yeah, I think if anything, he would even have more notoriety this year if it wasn't for Igor Shosturkin having the year that he's having. Yeah. When you look on um on Twitter, all of the beat writers in New York are talking about Igor Shosturkin and then Chris Kreider's name comes mm-hmm. up. But when you think about it, 50 goals is crazy. How old is Chris Kreider? Like 35 or something like that? 34? I, I think he's in his late 20s, early 30s. He's that I young? Can, yeah, I think he's he's like a guy who's been around for a long time. He looks like he's 35. There's no way. He is 30. He's 30. Wow, okay, so he's still in that. He's still towards like the middle end of his prime. Yeah, he's got probably a few years left. I don't know if he'll score 50 again, but he's going to be an effective player f- still for a few more years. What's kind of crazy too is that if you told me to pick a couple players on the New York Rangers who would score 50, he's well, not that comes first. It'd be Sabinajad yeah. and Panarin first. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and never mind one of the first guys in the league that you think of, not even the first guy on, on their team. And he scores a bunch of his goals from the, within five feet of the net, tipping pucks, getting garbage goals. and Goal's a goal. Goal is a goal. And then that's... You know, the, I feel like those types of goals are somewhat sustainable because you have to be there to get them. Yep. If he keeps putting himself in those spots, I think he's gonna, he'll keep scoring. Um, you you alluded to this earlier. We were gonna touch back on this team that's making a late a late push, but it's not a late push without some shenanigans. We're talking about the Vegas Golden Knights. Vegas Golden Knights are they have a soft spot in your heart, so I'm gonna let you talk about sort of what's been going on there recently it's getting tough to keep defending these guys (laughs) uh since mark stone was a game time decision against calgary he came in um surprise surprise vegas confirmed a couple of days ago that they placed william carrier nolan patrick and loren perswan on the ltir giving them an additional 4.925 million in cap relief that is from cap friendly pretty reputable source that gave them a total of 9.93 million in usable space and surprise surprise the space they needed to activate mark stone was 9.5 million you know coincidence i just it's just so sketchy how these players go on long-term injured reserve as soon as one comes off like that's just not how it's supposed to work like to qualify for the ltir quote unquote from the cba agreement i believe it's that a player must be expected to miss at least 10 H- 10 nhl games and 24 days of the nhl season now is it possible that once or twice you come to that realization as soon as another player comes off the ltir maybe but it's happened like five times this year it's it's definitely sketchy 
with, without a doubt. I don't know if it's defensible based on, let's say, the spirit of the rule. But what I will say is that NHL players at any moment in time are probably hurt enough in some capacity that they can say, yeah, I need 10 games off. Mm-hmm. But the the way that they're doing it, it's 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 funny now. It's funny that they don't even care enough to hide it. Oh, but why would they? Uh, but why Everyone why not? Knows. To have some integrity, place these three guys on the LTIR maybe two weeks before Stone comes back because Brissois wasn't playing. Carrier and Patrick weren't playing. They've been hurt for a long time. They've just been on the IR, but now yeah. they move them on the LTIR right when Stone comes back. There, there must be some sort of cap implications where the longer you hold people out, or you the longer you wait to put them on LTIR, maybe you get a couple extra. I don't know how it works, but there must be a reason. And I'll say, I'm going to say this every time we bring up these types of LTIR shenanigans is that if the rules are written that way, that's an NHL problem, not a Vegas problem. True. That That's where I stand on these. It's definitely shady. 100% it's shady. But the NHL, the way the rules are written, allows for the shady behavior to happen. So as far as I'm concerned, if you're not, if you're not doing this, you're not trying. I guess the... the this is the perfect example of don't hate the player, hate the game. You know, exactly. If the, if the rules are there, you can. It's not exploiting. It's just it's just being smart. But now the question is, is that how does this impact the playoff race in oh. the West? From when I looked a couple minutes ago, Vegas is two points out right now um, from a wild card spot in the West. They have an extra game um, played, so one less game in hand. Um, I think it's really important to bring up a quote that Sutter made this morning. He said, "When Vegas is completely healthy." They are the favorite to win the Stanley Cup, other than the team who currently has the Stanley Cup now, which is the Tampa Bay Lightning. Yeah. And you know, a lot of respect to Sutter for saying that they they are at a higher favorite than Calgary. I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with Sutter here. When you look at these lines, they are insane. Their first line is Pacioretty, Stephenson, Mark Stevenson. Sorry, I always get that name Stevenson. wrong. Mark Stone. Their second line is Eichel, Dadanov, and Nicholas Ra. And their third line is Jonathan Marchessault, Carlson, and Amadio. And Amadio has been really, really good this year. I think that come playoff wow. time, they're going to be running Pacioretty, Stevenson, Stone, and then Dadanov, Eichel, Marchessault. Because Marchessault looked great with Eichel. Wow. Those that's, are, that's what might be the best top six in the league. It's deep. They're deep. And defensively, they are also unbelievable. They're good defensively, yeah. Shea yeah. Theodore is having a bit of a renaissance late, late into yeah. the year because he was really bad to start off the year. He's looking good again. Petrangelo is looking really good again. Um, Alec Martinez came back. He's yeah, looking good. Right. You know, they have guys like McNabb and White Cloud who are big dudes on that defensive end who yeah. can log minutes. I think it comes down to Robin Leonard in that, to be honest with you. I don't yeah, know. What do you, true. What do you think now that they're healthy? I'm not even thinking about a wild card spot. I, I think that I think they're gonna pass the Kings. They're gonna third. Wow. They're a point back with the game in hand. So yeah. if they win that game in hand, they're there. And the Kings have been brutal. Not brutal. They've no. been sub 500 recently. They've, which, been, they've been brutal. They got they got rinsed against Colorado. Yeah. If you're trying to make a playoff push or keep a playoff spot, and you're playing sub 500 while the team chasing you is seven two and one in their last ten, it's it's not looking good for the Kings. And what makes it even this is cynical of me. What makes it even more funny is that they're going to play the Oilers if they do that. And we just talked about the Oilers need to have success, similar to the Leafs. They they both need to find some success this year. That's just not fair. That's that's tough. It's a tough draw. What are you going to do? I, yeah. I You know what? I have a question for you. If they play Calgary completely healthy, if you had to put money on it, who do you take? Oh, man. And we'll for, give Calgary home ice because that's what it would be. Okay. For for a cup, it, it's really close. But for a couple of reasons, I'd probably still pick Calgary. Okay. And the reason I'll say that is one for chemistry. The 
Vegas Knights have been hurt a lot this year, so it's gonna be a it's gonna be the first time I think this whole roster is playing together as they have been. Um, so th- there might be some kinks they're still working out come playoff time, which there might not. Uh, you don't have the you can't afford to do that in the playoffs. And also goaltending, you mentioned Jacob Markstrom's having. He's not gonna win the Vesna, but he, he can very likely get nominated for. It. He's been phenomenal, and we talked about Robin Leonard. He's been hurt. He's somewhat inconsistent come playoff time. He's still very good. Don't get me wrong, but I think Jacob Markstrom's just a touch better. And so for those reasons, I would pick them. But I think that's going six, if not seven. Oh, for sure. To be honest with you, I think that if Robin Leonard stands on his head, I got Vegas. And I know that's a big if because, like you said, Jacob Markstrom's having a crazy year too. But Vegas matches up offensively against they Calgary. I oh, think, yeah. Honestly, I think they're better. And I know we've given so much credit to um, the Goudreau, Lindholm, and Kachuk line. But <sighs> I'm sorry. Give me Eichel, Pacioretty, Stone any day. Really? You, you would take that? You I haven't would... seen them play. So I'm sure maybe once I see them, my, my opinion might change because they're gonna, they're huge and they're all really good players well the right. reason why i say this is because max patretti and mark stone have shown that they are very successful together they are two yeah. great playmaking wingers and jack eichel is one of the better defensive um forwards in the is league he? as well yeah he's okay. very he's very good defensively and when you play with another selkie candidate in in mark stone yeah, i think he's right. A, right even if max patretti isn't the best defensive winger it, do, it, it just it just yeah. doesn't matter defensively i think they're better i, I think they're their they're top three are better than Calgary's top three. That there they got Rasmus Anderson, um, Shillington, and um, Hannafin. Hannafin, right? And no disrespect to them; those are three good defensemen. But I'm sorry, give me Petrangelo, Theodore, and Alec yeah. Martinez. They have, they have ten of two. They might be they might be deeper, but the top end on Vegas might be better. It, it's an interesting matchup. Yeah, like like you said, it, it's going to come down to goaltending. Leonard has been really bad this year. I think in his last ten, he's got a save percentage of just under nine, a goals against of like three and a half. <laughs> I mean, that's not going to fly in the playoffs, no. especially with the offensive firepower that. Calgary brings, but if Robin Leonard gets gives them average goaltending, I would take Vegas in seven. But I wouldn't be surprised to see Calgary in seven either. Yeah, yeah. Either way, it's going to be a long series and it's going to be a grinding series. Those are two really physical teams. Whoever makes it out of that series is going to be walking with one leg afterwards. Yep, I, I I agree. The only place that I think DeBoer has done very poorly with the Vegas Golden Knights, and I watch a lot of this team because they are my second favorite team in the NHL. They always play after the Leafs, is their first power play. Right now, Vegas is just out of a wild card spot. Um, the power play one looked so good with Jonathan, Mar- Jonathan Marchessault and Jack Eichel before Stone and Pacioretty came back. Their power play overall is like 23rd in the league at 18%. It's Ooh, been really bad. Good. Pacioretty and Stone come back. They have never played a game with Eichel, and Peter DeBoer throws them on the first line power play and takes off Marcheseau and Dadanov. I, I I don't understand the move because the team relies on the power play, and if the team was starting to finally look good on power play one, why would you completely ruin it with the guys that have no chemistry? I don't know. I'd like to get your opinion on this. Sometimes I feel that like when big big players come back off injury coaches are just pressured to immediately throw them back in the role they were in before even when they're clearly not ready for it yeah it it could easily be that egos are egos are egos guys are going to want to play first power play Mm -hmm. i'm thinking and uh, maybe the reason that he wanted to do this was that eventually you know these guys are going to play together so let them work it out but the caveat to that is they need to win these games so you don't have the opportunity to to 
tinker with things. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like now is not the time. They are they have one less game played. They are currently out of a playoff spot. They need to keep winning. The power play finally started to look good. Jonathan Marchessault was anchoring that power play so beautifully. I don't understand why. First of all, you change it, and second of all, if you change it, you take Marchessault off that line. It just it doesn't make sense to me. I'm sorry, Stone hasn't played in 20, 25 games. Pacioretty just came back from yet yeah, another, injury, another injury. Right? They've never played with Eichel. That team's power play looked abysmal against Calgary. They not only could not walk the puck in, they clearly did not have an understanding of where other guys were. Like, I don't think they had a stretch where more than two passes were completed. I saw three of their power plays. They didn't register a shot. And then the second line power play comes out with 30 seconds left because Eichel, Stone, and Pacioretty play a minute and a half on the first power play. And they start to work it a little bit on that second line. Yeah. Right? I agree with you. If they were in a playoff spot, let them work it out. Yeah. But now is not the time. No, I, I, I don't I understand. I don't understand. It's not, not really defensible. I think maybe for their sake. I think they're going to end up making it in, so maybe this won't matter as much. But True. in the moment right now, I think Vegas fans and yourself as one of them have a reason to be confused. Yeah, like it also matters. That it's not only about getting into the playoffs. It's about getting into the playoffs and not playing Colorado. Yeah, and, and if, they, if they pass the Kings, they won't They won't have to worry about them. But if the Kings start to win some games, they're, they're not guaranteed anything right now. Yeah, no, I don't know. I, I'd be pretty interested to see how it plays out, but... Maybe let's move on to something I am really, really excited about. One thing that I will say is I'm just going to give a big shout out to all of our supporters on TikTok and Twitter. It's really cool to see us growing pretty quickly, yeah. right? We're, we're gaining followers by the day on, on TikTok. We're getting some really good conversation in the comment sections. And so we thought that with fantasy season coming to an end, we would kind of switch up a segment because obviously we can't do a fantasy segment anymore. Yeah. And we had a really good idea that every Tuesday we would post a TikTok video and ask our supporters to comment something in on the video, asking us a question that maybe we would pick and bring up and, and discuss on the podcast, yeah, right? There it. were some really good questions that were asked and we ended up choosing two of them. I'm going to ask you the first one and then I'll give you my take after that. The question was, okay. do you think Austin Matthews has a chance at winning the heart the Rocket Richard and the Selkie all in one year. And let me let me just say this really oh. quickly. I think two of these trophies are decided. So maybe I'll ask you to elaborate a little bit more on the Selkie, but give me your take on the question. I think the I think the Rocket Richard, I mean Drysaddle scored a hat trick yesterday, so he's still within you know, he can still maybe catch him, but I think Matthews has that one pretty locked up unless he goes on a really long dry run. Um a dry spell rather. Um, I think the heart, if he gets to 60 goals and I, I think especially with Shesterkin's less amazing play down the stretch I think recency bias is going to play a huge role um, I think he's got a really good shot at winning that as well I don't think you can lock him in for it for any I don't think you can lock him in for that because a voting award but I do think he's you know a pretty strong contender for that when it comes to the Selkie I'm just happy that people are talking about him in the Selkie because it, it shows that maybe he's not worthy of winning and I'll elaborate on that later but it, it, it just it's a, te- it's a testament to how much he's developed his game. It's not not often that you hear about the guy leading the league in scoring also being very good defensively, and that's objectively what Matthews has become. Um, so now, now that I've said that, I don't necessarily think he'll win the Selkie because I think, and I think we're, we'll agree on this one, is that there are there is rather one clear favorite for the Selkie this season, and that's. Patrice Bergeron, who at 36 seems to never age, 
who's always seems to be an elite hockey player. And I think a lot, a lot of conversation about the Selkie is, is interesting because people, I think people define the Selkie differently sometimes. And some people define it as the best purely defensive forward that doesn't take into account offense. And some define it as the best two-way player. So you need to have a bit of both. But the NHL defines it as the player that, quote-unquote, the player that that best excels in the defensive aspect of yeah. the game. And by that logic, the offense doesn't matter as much. Or it shouldn't, quite yeah. frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I read an article that said even if we had a two had a quote-unquote two-way selkie and a purely defensive selkie patrice bergeron is at the top of both of those lists analytically they ran their their models that i'm not familiar with but dom's model and another model that did the, the defensive one mm-hmm. the purely defensive one and, and patrice bergeron led the list on both of those and so i think it goes without saying that it's got to be him this year but i want to hear your take on uh, on that yeah really quickly austin for Hart, austin for richard yeah bergeron for selkie um it is crazy that Bergeron is having one of the best defensive years of his career. And mm-hmm. this is what's really crazy is that he leads both defensemen and forwards on his team in Corsi 4%, Fenwick 4%, and expected goals 4%. And please correct me if I'm wrong because you know more about advanced stats than I do. But Corsi 4% means that while he is on the ice, um, because it's over than 50%, his line is has a takes more shots on their other team's net than they allow on their own net, correct? Yeah, shot, shot attempts. Shot yes. attempts. And the Fenwick one basically says that actual shots on net are more. Yeah. Right? So, you know, we got a little bit of heat in the comment section on TikTok. Some guy argued that, you know, Corsi 4 percentage might not be a defensive stat. I'd like to disagree with that because if a line is generating more offensive shots, attempts than they are giving up defensively sure one could make the argument that they're they're just so good offensively that you know the number of shots they take outweighs their bad defense but for a guy like Patrice Bergeron it is clearly his defensive aspect that's driving this stat it is crazy that usually guys like Pasternak and Marchand beat Bergeron every single year in these percentages but that is not the case this year we saw Jay Fresh posted a crazy stat from top down hockey saying that the Bruins with Patrice Bergeron on the ice have been one of the best lines since 2007 in like literally every single defensive stat, beating the 2007-2008 Detroit Red Wings. Like crazy, crazy defensive teams. Good examples are in single season, five on five shots, four percentage. In single season, five on five, Corsi, four percentage. Expected goals percentage and Fenwick, four percentage. Patrice Bergeron is at the top of all four of those lists from any player since 2007. So not even this season. Not even this season. It's a, almost there, a decade of. If there more. was a decade yeah, Selkie award, more than a decade. If there, yeah, if there was more than a decade Selkie award, he would win that this year. Yeah, he is having a crazy, crazy year. Yeah, and he's been nominated for a bunch of them, but I think he's only won a few, which is probably just maybe we feel bad giving it to the same guy every year, but he can be argued every year as as the the clear winner of the Selkie and. If people want to get on us for having Corsi 4 percentage, which you're right, it can be, if you take it into context, it can be a defensive stat. But I'm talking about shot suppression at 5-on-5. Five five. He has the lowest in the league. And among the top among the top 10 in sort of this court of the Selkie model, he had also had the lowest goals 4 percentage per 60. So lowest shot suppression and one of the lowest goals goals against per 60, rather. Two is, purely defensive stats. Which is incredible. Wow, yeah. So now the question becomes, who can compete with him 
you know, and not even who can compete with him, who gets on the ballot list, you know, to answer this question that we were asked, does Austin Matthews get votes? What do you think? He, he'll get votes. Absolutely. I think some votes are deserved. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know if he will get nominated, but even just getting votes. And if he were to get nominated, that is still a spectacular achievement, I think. Yeah. So when we talk about guys that are going to get on the ballot, I think the other names are widely agreed. It's going to be Sorelli, Matthews, and um, Barkov. Um, when we look at Austin Matthews, the only place he kind of compares himself to, to um, Patrice Bergeron, is that he, him and Bergeron are the only two players in the league that are in the 99th percentile of forwards when it comes down to shutting down their competition in terms of shot suppression, like you said. Yeah. It's just crazy to see a 65 goal scorer in Austin Matthews, don't want to jinx him, but he might get there. Hopefully. Be in the 99th percentile of defensive metrics. You know, it's so awesome to finally see that all the UFR talk talk about Austin Matthews not only being good at one end of the ice is finally coming true it's just uh, Patrice Bergeron is having a crazy year when you look at goals goals against per 60 shots against per, six, per 60 and expected goals against per 60 Patrice Bergeron leads all three categories and in second place in all three categories is Anthony Sorelli hmm. um, in third place Barkov and Matthews kind of flip-flop so how the way that I see this working is Patrice Bergeron is going to get every single first ballot first place As he should. yeah and i think sorelli will come in second i think matthews is going to finish in the third to fourth range maybe they'll give barkov the the last place on the podium just because he's been so good his whole career yeah possibly the last thing i'll say is that a huge pack a huge factor for bergeron is that he also kills penalties and matthews I was just gonna ask you that yeah matthews doesn't see much of that i mean sorelli and barkov also kill a lot of penalties which is I mean, kind of a prerequisite for the Selkie. Do, do you award. think it is? I think so, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a big argument is that Matthews doesn't kill penalties, so how can you call him the best defensive forward? Which I, I understand to a degree, but also most of the game is played five on five, and he's excelling defensively in that respect as well. I think with the Leafs in particular, it's just, and maybe I'm off base here, but the Leafs have a, a strong group of penalty-killing forwards. Mm -hmm. Why put Austin Matthews out there to risk his getting hurt you know what i'm gonna change my mind i agree with you that's a great point the fact that austin matthews doesn't kill penalties doesn't mean that he's not good enough too you're right like guys like mikhaev and engvall and marner yeah. are just better at it matthews has faced injuries in his past why expose him to possibly taking a block from shea weber at the top yeah. of the circle and being out for the year yeah and listen if if um the penalty kill is a prerequisite for the selkie in the voters eyes then you know what fine i'd rather him not play the penalty kill and be healthy than have to block shots for votes. I think Austin Matthews at some point in his career wins the Selkie, but I think that happens wow. once Bergeron is retired. Yeah, I don't think Ber Bergeron is going to be a front runner until he retires. But I've actually, funnily enough, on a little bit of a side note here, I've heard that he might retire this year. His contract's up. That would be amazing for the Atlantic Division. <laughs> yeah, it would. <laughs> it would be. I have a, I have a feeling he's going to get swayed into signing back, but I've I've heard there's there's a serious potential that, that he might not come back at 36. He's had a crazy career. He's had some pretty serious injuries as well. Maybe he calls it quits after at 36. Maybe. Um, are we ready to move on to the second question, or you got any more things to talk nope, about I'm here? Good to go. Okay, the second question I thought was really cool. Really it it cool, was yeah. asked by an individual who talked about expansion coaches, coaches and said, if you were starting a team this year and you could only take one coach, who would your coach be to start this new expansion team? And, you know, that is a lot different from who is the best coach in the league, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. So my question is to you. Who's your guy? Okay. Well, there are. I'll just start by saying I think there are some coaches who are better suited to take a team from A to B, so starting point to 
maybe a playoff French playoff team or progression and then another coach to take that team to the next level sure and so in an expansion team you're looking for that a to b type and that doesn't necessarily mean this guy has to be the most tactically astute coach or have all the x's and o's down but more one that can galvanize a group of people bring guys together especially in an expansion team because essentially what you all are in pretty harsh terms is a bunch of rejects guys the teams that you came from they don't want to protect you. Yeah. And so you were exposed. And so maybe these guys go into this new team kind of feeling down about themselves, understandably so. So you need a guy who's going to rally the group. I think the easy answer here is Gerard Gallant hmm. because he did it with Vegas. But I don't want to pick him for that reason. Okay. I'm going to pick Rod Brindamore. Wow. Okay. And I think Rod Brindamore is because his teams play very well. They play offensive hockey. They play high, um, sorry, high, high tempo, high impact hockey. But he also seems like the type of coach who gets his guys to run through walls for him. He's super energetic, super passionate. And when you have a group of guys who are new to each other, not familiar, maybe not feeling the best they felt in their career, you need a guy who's going to just be there to pull you. I was listening to um, Spin Chicklets and they had, um, oh my God, what's his name? Jordan Martinuk on. And he said all of these things about Rod Brindamore, about how he just gets the guys going, how he's one with the team, he works out with them sometimes. He just seems like a, a player's coach. Mm-hmm. So that's the type of guy that I would uh, that I would go for. Also, on terms of togetherness, um, one of the biggest news stories with Broad Brindamore coming um, when his contract was coming up with the Canes is that he didn't sign his contract until all of his coaching staff and training staff and equipment staff got extensions as well. So I think that just um, is a testament to how much he values the togetherness or the team aspect of a team, if that makes sense. So he'd be my choice. That's tough to follow. That was a very good analysis. <laughs> that was very good. So, who do you got? I took it a little bit differently. Um, Let's hear it. Maybe I misread the question. I I thought about a coach who could not go from A to B, but who could do it all. I kind of imagine okay. this question is saying, choose one guy who you would have for oh, okay. right for as long as you can. Who would you pick? And from there, my answer is Mike Sullivan. Oh, um, I knew. I kind of had a feeling you were yeah. going to pick him. Four reasons, in my opinion. First of all, like we said, we need a guy who wins. Sully has two Stanley Cups and has made the playoffs in almost every single year. That's crazy. That he has coached. Number two, he can face adversity. And when you talk about an expansion team, there are going to be a lot of bad years. Yeah. There are going to be a lot of good years. Pittsburgh has been the definition of injury-ridden over mm. the last five, six years. Oh, yeah. And every single year, despite injury, they're there. And you can't even make the argument that the big players aren't being hurt. Crosby, Malkin, Rust, Gensel are getting hurt every single year. And somehow this team makes it to the playoffs, right? I I don't understand it. Mike Sullivan knows what he's doing. Um, He's got a winning formula, and it's something that I really love. Number three, he can coach stars without losing a room. That is huge Mm. in my opinion. There are so many coaches who get into headbutts with big players. And when... That kind of stuff hits the fan. The players aren't going anywhere. It's it's the coach. We saw it with Mike Babcock. We mm-hmm. saw it with Dave Tippett. Yeah. We, we don't see it with Rob Brindamore, which is why he is a great coach. Um, yeah. To what you True. said, I completely agree. Mike Sullivan gets amazing reviews from Crosby, Malkin, Gensel, and Latang. There is a reason he hasn't been fired in all of their 10 years. And it's, in my opinion, I think he's the best overall coach in the league. I've said this for a really, yeah. really long time. That's a 
strong case. Yeah, and the last thing I said is, the last thing I'll say why I'd pick Mike Sullivan is because he knows how to develop young prospects, which is good for an expansion coach thing. Mm -hmm. One thing I didn't know is that Brian Russ and Jake Ensel were both drafted by Pittsburgh. Yeah, they were college guys, I think. Yeah, um, around the same time, like 2014, 2015, which is when Sullivan was hired by, by Pittsburgh. And look at what he did with Rust and Gensel. Like, you can say, oh yeah, they played with Crosby. But like I said, there are many years when Crosby was hurt and they were still insane, mm -hmm. right? Gensel, mm -hmm. I remember, had those first few years playing with Crosby where he scored all those goals, signed that big contract, and everyone thought it was an overpay. Yeah. Then Crosby gets hurt. He still scores 30 a year. He's so good. Right? We got to wonder how much of that is from Mike Sullivan. And I think the answer is a lot. I'm sure a lot of it has to do with him. Right? Yeah. So if I'm picking a coach to go from expansion to Stanley Cup, I got I got my boy that's, Mike Sullivan. That's a really good choice. And also, he got Phil Kessel to be a Conn Smythe favorite. Wow. He, he, was one of, he was one of those coaches who had the ability to work with him and we know from his time here, Kessel's, people call Kessel uncoachable. He's not uncoachable, but he is unique. And so to be able to bring him into that team as a tr as a deadline acquisition and work him in and get him to succeed the way he did, that's a lot of good coaching. And I mean, to turn a quote-unquote uncoachable player into a consummate candidate is pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we're going to wrap up here with, with some trivia. Now, I'm going to quiz Andrew this time. Here we're we go. switch it up again. I want, I want another chance at it. Redemption. And in terms of the theme, I want I wanted to keep it still f like related to our listeners. I, I kind of picked from the theme of their question. So it's a little bit of awards with Selkie, Hart, Rocket, and then also one, I'll, I'll call it interesting, coaching question. And I was actually really surprised when I did the research that there's only one of these. But for the first question, who is the only, only coach who also played for the team that they're currently coaching? Only there's only one. There's only one. I was shocked. Okay, well this one's easy because there's one obvious one. It's it's Robert Endemore, right? You're right. Okay, if there was a second one, I would not have known that. That's the when I when I was doing research, I, I put him in before I started looking, and then I found out there were no others. I was like, wow. Didn't Sheldon Keith play for like the the Leafs AHL or was it not the Leafs? I don't, he played for the Lightning, I think. Maybe okay. But yeah. either way, I was I was shocked. If I'm wrong, I apologize. But anyway so that, that was the first one it also helped that i just that i just talked about me was right on the top of our minds mm -hmm. but i think that was a fairly obvious one but we'll move on now on to the rocket i want you to try and name me the last five players to win the rocket so not including this year because it's not done yet last year was it dreitzeidel mm, no well do i got to give it to you in order or can i just name them you can just try naming them i know ov won it one year yeah. I know. Didn't Dreitzel win it in the year of COVID? He's never won a rocket? Not yet. Wow. Okay. Who are other goal, big goal scorers in the league? One name is kind of surprising, but not really when you think about it. Okay. Give me a hint. Okay. So, I was, we'll just try going in order for, like, for clarity's sake. Sure. So, the pandemic year the last season the shortened season it wasn't Connor mcdavid was it no you're you're, you're miss you're, you're gonna shoot you're gonna want to you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot here you're gonna be really upset if you don't get this one it wasn't dried it wasn't mcdavid canadian team come on canadian team my gosh you got this you got this okay canadian teams it, it wouldn't have been vancouver it wouldn't have been was it vancouver no it was it's your, it's your boy it's my boy all of our boys. All of our boys. Come on. <laughs> My boy. 
Hold our boy. I'm having an absolute brain fart. Was it Matthews? Mm-hmm. No way he won the Richard he, last he year. Won the Rocket last okay, year. that's kind of embarrassing. That's okay. Wow, okay. I thought this would have been his first year to win the Richard. He no won it last way year too. But this one's year. a full season, so it definitely means more. Wow. Okay. Sorry, Austin. I apologize for that one. Okay, the year before was the pandemic year before that, where they played 56 games, and McDavid had like that 100 and point, 108 so point year. Matthews won in the 56 game season last year. This was the season that got cut off. Really close to the end. It was March 13th or something. And it wasn't Ovechkin that year. Mm. It was. I could have sworn Ovechkin won it. It was Ovechkin. Nice. We'll take take that one. So then the year before that, this was a full season, the last full season before this one. This is the one where it's, you you know he's a great goal scorer, but he's not the first name that comes to your mind when you think of a Rocket. Was it Gaudreau? No. He's a great goal scorer. (laughs) Okay, let's think. Great goal scorers. Um... Oh my God! That was Pasternak. They rewon it, right? Okay, I got that one. Nice. That was a tough. That was the toughest one. Okay, because the guy I remember that year. The the winners of the the two years prior to that is one of the guys you already named. That that was the year. Those were the two years Ovechkin went on that tear, right? Yeah, Ovechkin won. Take Ovi, Ovi. He won both. Okay, so not bad. I I got kind of destroyed on on the big question, but with Matthews, you you made up for it after because you got the other four right. So hey, four out of five. Yeah, with, 80%, a 80%. With, with a big L on the Austin one. Damn, I totally forgot about that. And and, th- and this is just a sidebar of, of this question to, to just emphasize how crazy Ovi is. I don't necessarily, I, I didn't know the answer to this. I just want to just emphasize how good he is. How many times do you think he's won the rocket in his career? Isn't it something dumb like six or something? It's more. It's more. Is it seven? Keep going. <laughs> nine? It's nine. No way he's won it nine he's times. Nine how many times. years has he been in the league? Like 15? Since oh. A while since I think 0607. I guess it makes sense to to beat that Gretzky record. You, you need longevity you and you need a bunch to. of crazy years. And he did it with those COVID years. Yeah. He got a couple goals taken away from him too. Wow. Okay. So now, that was just a sidebar question. Now back to this question is closely related now to our fan question. Okay. There are only two players to do this, but who are they? Who are the two players to win both the Rocket and the Heart in the same season? Okay, one of them's obvious. It's Ovechkin. Ovi did it three times. Three times? He did it three times. He's got three heart trophies. Wow. Yeah. At least. Okay, and then the other one. This one's a little tougher. Okay, Matthews has never won a heart. Um, Gotta go back a few years. Pasternak never won a heart. Okay, hold on. Going back a few years to like when, the Pacific, the when like the Pacific Division was good? Yes. Wow, okay. So those were the years that like LA was good. Um, I know Jeff Carter scored a bunch of goals then, but he had never won a heart. Um, what other teams were really good? Calgary was really bad. Edmonton was really bad. Vancouver was really bad. San Jose was good. Let's go through San Jose. I know Marlo Thornton never won a heart. Um, any other coacher never won a heart. Okay. Ooh, Anaheim was good. Very good. Getzlav never won a heart. Man, there was a year Perry scored like 50-something. He was so good. I'm going to... Is it Anaheim? Because if it's Anaheim, I'm guessing I'm guessing Perry. It is It is. No Anaheim. way it's Perry. It's, it's Perry. He won a heart that year? 10-11. Yeah, 2010, wow. 10-2011, he won the heart and the rocket. It is crazy to see that young kids today only think of um, Perry as a like as a type of goon player. When back in the day, he was insane. He was unbelievable He was insane. Then. What was really cool is that Ryan Getzlav announced his retirement yeah, yeah. a few weeks ago. And did you see that interview with him where um, oh, Corey Perry okay. started to like tear up a little bit? Mm-hmm. Him and Ryan Getzlav had a few years of utter dominance in the they league. They were so good together. Quite arguably the best one-two punch in the league. And Corey Perry came out and said that, Ryan Getzlav did so much for his career, and it was pretty cool to see like a hockey player who 
you know, is in a group that is known to not show emotion very much. And yeah, he, that's very true. Right. He started to get emotional. It was really cool to see. I think him and Ryan Getzav are very good friends off the ice as well. I, I think so. Yeah, yeah. it makes, makes sense. They played all those years together and won the Cups or the Cup rather. Okay, um, I'm, I'm yeah. going to be honest. I'm kind of proud of myself with that Corey Perry one. That but was the, a good one. That was a, that was the that was tough the austin matthews one is pretty inexcusable you made, i think you made up for that easily in okay. these last couple is that the last question i got one more and it's probably the hardest one okay okay so who is the only player to win the selkie and the heart in the same year there's only one to ever do it no way you're doing this to me okay can you give me the year so i just know the yeah era? you're gonna hate me 93 94 i i wouldn't have guessed this but i want to keep it linked to our question earlier 93 94 i can give you the team if you want we keep thinking 93 mm-hmm. 94 he won the heart and the selkie and the selkie yeah you got to give me the team detroit. detroit those teams were loaded back then was it was it zetterberg no i don't think no not zetterberg Oh, it was way before that i think zetterberg i don't think it was around yet way before his time it was a selkie so it was obviously a forward yeah yeah the mule was was not was playing with Zetterberg, so it was before that no. time as well. Yeah, we, we weren't even watching hockey at this time because we weren't born yet. But dude, I have that's abs- why. But it, it's kind of cool. I have no clue. Okay, no. Cl- just, is, is it is it is it a notorious name? He, he is. He's in the Hall of Fame, and I, he's Russian. If that helps. Obviously, it wasn't that Suk. That was before his no. time. I have no clue. Okay, I'll I'll just tell you this. This was unfair of me, but I again I wanted to keep it linked. It was it was Sergey Fedorov. Sergey Fedorov. Yeah, so Sergey Fedorov won the heart and the selkie. He was that good. I knew he was good. I know he was that good. He was unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So that's our trivia. Was I wanted to keep it linked to our fan segment just to kind of keep it on theme, but uh, what I will say is you had the, the, that Austin one. You're beating yourself up about. Don't because you made it up that with the other ones. Hey, happens. I think you made it, you, you you made up for it quite well. I'll take I it. That was good. Any um, any last words? Not from my end. What are you thinking? Uh, I'll say Sheldon Keith. I haven't washed my right hand since last <laughs> night because I needed to make sure that the hand went from your hand to the microphone. So, did we basically have Sheldon Keith on the podcast? I think I think that counts. Just, we need to hey. see him. We need to see him in person can, in a couple months in the off season. We can make a TikTok with that title. Click a little, little bit of clickbait. Never hurt anybody. Sheldon Keith, I love you. Hopefully, you're listening to this episode. <laughs> Please tell Austin to score sixty. We need him. We love him. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next week. Thank you for tuning in. This has been the Upon Further Review podcast. We'll see you all next week.